Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Kartik Shaker, who is author of After Meat and has some very interesting insights into the world of what is really going to replace the dead bodies in our diets. Well, not our diets. And in particular, offers some focus on an aspect of this that isn't as often discussed as some others. And that is the role of fermentation in this whole endeavor. Wow, that's a lot. Yes, super interesting. And I feel like we're all kind of aware of of cell-based meat and, and, and all of the new products that are going to come out maybe someday if they ever get permission. But it's much, much more complex and and intermingled than than I think I realized. There's a, there's really a lot going on. So we're going to try to catch up with some. And fortunately, Kartik wrote a book about it. Uh, some of which I understood, some of which I didn't. Uh, but very, very useful interview and interesting. Nice guy. So you know what I had? I was talking to the vet recently, and and we were talking about. I told the vet about the interview I did with Andrew Knight, the veterinarian. And I was telling my vet about the studies that Dr. Knight had talked about regarding cats and veganism. And and then I, I started talking about cultivated meat and she had absolutely no idea what I meant. So I thought, well, maybe it's because I used the word cultivated. So I was like, you know, like, uh, lab-grown meat. And she was like, hmm, what's that? And I, I realized I live in such a bubble. I mean, I, I thought that it was pretty common knowledge at this point. Am I wrong? I, I live in the same bubble, so it's hard for me to say. Uh, that's very distressing. Very distressing. <laughs> well, I mean, it is and it's not because I think that societal change happens so quickly sometimes. And I, I think that's what will happen with cultivated meat after yeah. a period of Ew, that's gross. I think everything will be... Yeah, no, you're right. It, it's not generally a mass movement that causes uh, societal change. It's, you know, it's like Margaret Mead said, it's a small group of committed individuals or something along those lines. She said it better than I did. But, but and that, that causes the change. Most people just kind of go along with the flow. I think it's it does not take a majority to prevail, rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting a brush fire in people's minds. I don't think that was Margaret Mead. Oh, that was Samuel Adams. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always get them confused, too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sometimes I go into a bar and order, I order a pint of Margaret Mead and they don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So aside from that, I guess the, one of the reasons I'm confusing things is because I'm a year older. Yeah, you are up there. I went to Color Me Mine the other day where you paint pottery, as 43-year-olds do. And there were these two people working there. They were both in their mid-20s. And <laughs> the music that was on was like all from the 80s. And I was like, you must have known a 40-something was coming and then one of the people who was working there was like, oh, I love this too. And the other person said to him, well, you're like an old person in your 40s. And I was like, hey there, you know, and she was like, oh, no, it's okay. I'll be an old person in my 40s someday too. Yeah, if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah, I'm going to walk away and paint my uh, dish, which was, by the way, I painted. I can't believe you're making age comments in front of me. Sorry. I know that's tacky. But I, I painted a dish, which I will pick up soon. And it was like this ode to Birdie. 
And then I looked at more and she was painting a mug with all of the animals she's ever had who have died, like their names on it. And I, I just thought it was, there was something so funny. Like we always just go to that. Like as soon as we're creating something, it, it, it's about our animals. And I, I honestly love that. I made a, a, I was there at this shindig, though I was definitely the local curmudgeon and did try to point out to people, you can actually buy dishes at a store that are already designed. You don't actually have to do this, but everybody else was like happily painting away. Not my thing. But anyway, I did make a, a little bowl. It was, I think, your idea. This was just a little small, a little small get together with like a couple, uh, a couple people because I had this cemetery tour on Saturday. We we live near a gorgeous, iconic, and historical cemetery where I think I've mentioned before Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass are both buried, and so my sort of birthday party was a tour of the cemetery. Our our tour guide was vegan, which was just a coincidence. And she was like 82 or something. We could, None of us could keep up with her. No, she was so fast. <laughs> I felt like she really wanted to get rid of us. She was sadly a health vegan. I mean, we're all health vegans, but I think she was mostly just a health vegan. But still, you could see it working because she was old and she could really move. I could not move because I actually had to use a cane because I'm having knee surgery very soon. Soon I will be sprinting around just like our vegan guide. Yeah. I, I just want to say one more thing about the week and then I, I want to get back to the surgery. But so after that, that was on Saturday and on Sunday I was like, wow, I have a lot. Sunday was my actual birthday. I was like, I have a lot of time just in my head right now. And so uh, like just a few of us wound up going to color me mine. And it was really a lovely way of spending the birthday. I, I basically spent the weekend going between weeping and like having a blast. It was a little jarring. But I just wanted to thank everyone who, who's listening for making donations because between now and the end of the year, it always kicks off with my birthday. Between now and the end of the year, all donations are tripled up to $20,000. So we are aiming to make $60,000. So Thank you for those of you who donated in honor of my birthday. And for those of you who are flock members or want to become flock members, if you go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate, you'll see how to do this and how to take part in our giant, enormous annual end of year fundraising drive. So thank you so much. And let's go back to your surgery because as we as we speak, it is tomorrow. I have no desire to talk about my surgery. I'm just, I'm a ball of anxiety for no good reason. I know everybody gets this surgery. Like it's like, that's what everybody keeps telling me, but I'm a ball of anxiety and I have no excuse for it. But until it's over, I kind of don't want to talk about it. Well, I just wanted to point out that like, we're, we're going to see how the next couple of weeks go in terms of recording the beginning of the podcast, if you're up for it. And if you're not, Stay tuned for some surprises because they will also be surprises to me, the way we handle them. Oh, I see no reason why I won't be able to unless I'm dead, of course. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm having surgery on... The Day of the Dead. On the Day of the Dead. Yep. <laughs> Who scheduled that? Hey, hey, hey. I think it's also <laughs> National Vegan Day, November 1st. Really? Yeah, it is. Right. It's National Vegan Day. So, yay. That's exciting. That's even so that negates Day of the Dead. And it's just a normal day. <laughs> just a surgery day. So but it is November and oh wait. 
Yeah, it's November. The time this airs, it's November. And I had to look because I was like, is it March? I, I honestly have no sense of time right now. But so it's the beginning of the holiday season, which is also officially kicked off by my birthday, <laughs> or at least that's how we we talk about it. And I don't think that like the nation talks about it that way. But it is a difficult season for a lot of vegans. And so we'll continue to check in with people, especially during our Flock Fridays, things like that. So if you are listening to this and you need a little extra support, hit us up. I know that you read some horrible headline about turkeys already. And it's like November 1st right now. We were trying to figure out what to talk about today. And I suggested this unbelievably dire thing about climate change. And Jasmine said, no. <laughs> so, so I substituted it. Uh, this is where I live, people. What can I tell you? With this unbelievably horrible story. I don't, like, I don't even know what's horrible anymore. So maybe this is good news, actually. Turkeys will cost more because 6 million died in bird flu outbreak. That's an article from the Washington Post. And that is what they thought was an appropriate headline. Let's let's talk about 6 million living creatures dying in a horrible disease and frame it in terms of like how much you're going to have to spend on Thanksgiving. I know this doesn't surprise anybody, but I just wanted to bring you all down <laughs> with me to... What is going on with people? What is going on? Why do people read that and think that's a good way to interpret the death of six million lovely birds? Uh, like, what the hell? All right, I'm sorry. I vented. I'm going to try and swing the pendulum the other way for a second. I'm, all right, I'm, I'm reaching. But if you live near a sanctuary or if you've always wanted to visit a sanctuary, this might be the season. It's possible that a sanctuary near you is having a Thanksgiving event or Thanksgiving for the turkeys event. If not, perhaps you could just, you know, visit. If you live in a wildlife refuge area, it's possible there are wild turkeys that you can go go watch and hang out with. This is a moment where I think we need to be very intentional about the way we're spending our time and the people we're spending it with. And if we have to spend time with people who don't get us, then at the very least, try and bookend those moments, those events, those phone calls, those family Zoom meetings, whatever, with people who do get you. So that's my unsolicited advice. And I will say there is a lot of reason to celebrate too because of people like we have on our hen house, because of people like Kartik. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm. It is a good thing we are concluding my, my incredibly depressing commentary with this very, very hopeful interview. Kartik Shaker has a doctorate in chemical engineering from Northwestern University. His research career has spanned many topics related to the future of food, such as bioreactors, quantitative biology, biochemical engineering, and metabolism. He currently works as a senior data scientist in the alternative food space in Berkeley, California, and he has written a nonfiction science slash technology book called After Meat, which explains why animals are awful technologically and why humanity will move on and do better. That is very hopeful. He will be joining Marianne right after this. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Kartik. Thank you, Marianne. I'm really happy to be here. Thrilled to have you. Really excited about your book, After Meat. It was very enlightening for me, and I feel like I know a lot about this stuff, but but there was a lot in there that I didn't know about. But let's talk about something that I do know a lot about, and actually listeners know a lot about, and that's the problem. Our audience is pretty familiar with the arguments of animal suffering, which I know is also your primary motivation, and the environmental degradation arguments. But maybe some are not as familiar with the details of the argument that you primarily rely on in this book. That's that's efficiency, why animals are so outdated as a production technology. And we're coming at that from two people who care very much about the animals because we're calling them production technology means that that's how the industry views them. Can you explain why it's so inefficient? We know a little bit about it, but you really know a lot about it. Yes. The the book After Meat takes this, uh, I would say, third argument separate from the environmental and the ethical arguments against animal agriculture. And that is just that animals are really outdated means of ways of producing commodities that we, that people like. So this is our meat, our dairy, our clothing, our biologics, medicine, and so forth. And yes, Marianne, what makes animals particularly terrible in terms of a means to produce goods is a few things. So one is that animals, you know, take a long time to grow. We think about a cow. And rearing her from adolescence to adulthood, you know, takes, you know, about a year, maybe, maybe a little bit less that, than that with all the, all the breeding. And from the standpoint of a producer, time is money, right? And so this, the time it takes for a cow to, to grow up into adulthood is an economic loss for them. And in addition to that, I think, you know, our hen house audience is well, very well aware, but uh, just animals uh, don't convert what they eat into the commodities all that efficiently. So I know for a cow, 95% of what they eat is quote unquote wasted. So, so it's not turned into any, any commodity. It's actually being used to fuel their just uh, breathing, their energy, their beating heart. And, uh, and these, these, these aspects stem from a few biological features of cows. So one is that they grow big. So they grow from, you know, a few feet into something, you know, the size of a car. That means that their bodies have to continually pervade nutrients around their body. And so this requires additional accessories or machinery within their bodies to actually circulate nutrients. And that's a cost. And we, in contrast, I think about something like microbial fermentation. So, so microbes, per their name, are microscopic. So, so we can't see them, you know, just with our naked eye. And they're so small that they don't actually require these extensive circulation systems. So they can actually be way more efficient from turning input into output. 
So just to put this in perspective of the differences here, if we had a microbe that could produce meat, produce dairy, and we had a process to do this, we could have a microbial bioreactor. So this is a vat where we're, where we're growing these microbes and making these goods. And one vat the size of, say, about a car or, or a bathtub can replace about 10,000 cows. Yeah, I, I, that's a mind-blowing number. And, and of course, the efficiencies for chicken and pigs are conceitedly better, but they're still very poor. And compared to the argument you made for microbial-based foods, is this the same thing as fermented foods? You use the term, both terms in the book. I wasn't, and I've heard people talk, you know, we talk all the time about the plant-based proteins and the cultured meat proteins. And then somebody always mentions, oh yeah, and then, then there's the fermented. And I never know what exactly what that means. And that's what we're going to find out in this interview, like what that means and why it's such an important piece of this puzzle. So uh, is it the same thing as fermented? Are those terms interchangeable? Yes, there's some nuance here. So I think of fermented as being like a bigger circle and then there being specific technologies within that circle. So fermented includes, you know, some very ancient food technologies such as beer, kimchi, wine. And when I think about replacing something like meat, I think about more modern microbial fermentation. And so I think maybe a term that might help here is, is biomass fermentation. So a useful example of this is corn, Q-U-O-R-N. Yeah, so much of your audience might be familiar. It is a food I'm very familiar with from having seen it in the grocery store, but I bet I and most of my listeners have not eaten it because it, uh, I think a, maybe recently it became vegan, but it was never vegan. So maybe you can explain that too uh, while we're mentioning it. But I've certainly seen it many times and thought, why don't they make it vegan? And perhaps you could explain that. Yes, yes. So I'll first explain uh, what corn is. So it's a microscopic fungus. You can't see it with your naked eye. But what they do is they isolated this microbe. They grow it in these big vats. And so it feeds on a sugar solution. These microscopic fungi actually double themselves. And they create this very protein-rich matrix. It's very akin to how we eat mushrooms that we buy in the grocery store. So like, you know, you, you, you think about your portabella, you know, it's that, it's that very like textured kind of smooth protein surface. And so these microbes produce these in these vats. And yes, the, the process economics of this are, are just, just amazing. It's, you know, thousands of times, you know, more efficient than what, what we could be doing with a cow. The history of it is uh, interesting in that corn, typically they add egg to kind of help it bind a little bit better, which is tragic. But I do know that they're starting to have more offerings where they omit the egg and have a fully, fully vegan products. Well, that's exciting to hear. And it's exciting to see that the eggs aren't a necessary part of the process. I have long said, without knowing really much about it, just just my basic instinct, that fungi are going to save the world, that, that the answer is in fungi. I, I, I love mushrooms, but I just love the whole thing. Like when I first started learning about fungi and, and how they connect all of everything in the world and all of the forests, it's just such a fascinating topic. But so you have this biomass fermented bioreactor, whatever that is. And you, you just put sugar 
and microbes and and we have to get i mean we'll we'll use i'll use the term microbes but clearly that's a term that needs to die in this in this area because you know we're not going to sell micro <laughs> microbial food to people that's my opinion that's my marketing opinion but we'll use it now all right so you just you have this bioreactor which we can talk about how how big a deal is it to make a bioreactor and you just put sugar like just regular sugar in it and microbes and all of a sudden you've got like enough food to feed the village yes you you formulate a media broth with all the essential nutrients that the that the microbes need and you you make the conditions right and yes so what is there besides sugar you know there might be some amino acids there'll be some salts there'll, there'll be some some um, some things to help balance the pH Make sure the the salt levels are, are the right level. Yeah, it's just it's just all about creating the right environment for them to, you know, thrive. Those materials, they're they're relative. They're vegan and they're relatively easy to obtain. They're not. It's I I know with cultured meat, which you can, we can talk a little bit about the comparison. The the actual serum in which in which the cells grow has been a big problem. I think it's a problem that they claim to have solved, but that's a huge problem. We don't have any such problem in here. That's right. So, so microbes by default do not require any of these growth factors to, to actually replicate themselves as you would in cultured meat. So yes, it is, you can have truly vegan sources for, for all the inputs that go into the process. So are there any other differences between cultured meat and fermented foods in, in the process of making them? I know you're a big fan of the fermented, the biomass fermented. That's what we're calling it. <laughs> yes, biomass um, fermented. Are there other relevant differences? Yes. Yeah, so like you said, Marianne, I think biomass fermentation is the future. I think actually cultivated meat is honestly a, a distraction. And the key differences I see is one that the deficiencies are just going to be you know, even better than we can do with cultivated meat. I think it's also just going to be easier. So I think the analogy I, I give with cultivated meat is it's like we're going back to the 19th century and trying to replace horses with robotic horses. We don't do technological progress by replacing things one-to-one. We do it by doing things better. And, and so in my view, that's exactly how this transition's going to occur. It's not going to occur by us, uh, you know, trying to make steak exactly like our grandparents ate steak. It's going to be by creating these wondrous new foods that are more nutritious, that are healthier and, and cheaper than anything we could ever do with an animal. Biomass fermentation, I think, is going to be easier to innovate. I think it's going to be you know, more potent in the long run in terms of taste, nutrition, and efficiency. And yeah, I think the other key differences are like you have like a really bigger variety of microbes. So the, just the diversity of microbes that are out there is just incredible. Of course, we need to do our diligence to make sure that they're you know, fit for human consumption. And I can totally expect some wariness from the audience, you know, that these, these foods seem completely foreign, alien, and you know, how do we know that they're safe? And if it's any solace, uh, so corn was actually, is actually probably our most safety-tested food to date. So there were over 15 years of studies to you know, understand how toxic or you know salute uh, or, or healthy it could be for for people so let's get off of health because I'll take your word for that but you kind of glided over the word taste like are we just going to be all be eating mushrooms for the rest of eternity like how like how many different foods can you make with this and how do you control how they taste 
actually in my day job, I actually work a lot on, on flavor science. And so f- taste or flavor comes down to how chemical molecules interact with our tongue and in the back of our nose. So there's the taste aspect. So that's your sweet, salty, umami, sour. So, so those are like the acetic acid that's, uh, you know, in our tomatoes. And uh, for the more complex aromas, that's the, as, as we masticate and chew food, we release odors. The odors get to the back of our nose, and then that's where we get like the complex aromas. And so, you know, when, when people talk about losing their sense of smell and taste, you know, with COVID, you know, that's what they're referring to. And thankfully, these taste molecules, they're not monopolized, you know, to, to certain parts of biological life or, or kingdoms, right? So the molecules that we associate with like, you know, for example, animal products, so, so things like butyric acid, butyric acid gives the experience of butteriness that's perceived in, in dairy. But butyric acid actually naturally occurs in any in, in many microbes. And so we can imagine that if we do our innovations in a very intelligent way and know where to look, we can reproduce flavors, we can reproduce taste, and we can even do better. And that's that's where I'm really excited. Yeah, no, I definitely want to get into that. But before I do that, you mentioned that it, it butyric acid imitates butter. Are we talking also about because texture, because texture has turned out to be such an important factor in plant-based meats, trying to get that texture right. It's really important to people, not just that it tastes like a burger, but that it feel like a burger. Is that something that can also be replicated? And I know you're not only interested in replicating, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, so so texture, I agree. So texture is, is definitely not decomposable to just molecules. It's just a much more complex phenomenon. So, yeah, admittedly, it's it's been a struggle in the alternative food movement. This this is actually why cheese actually has been so difficult. Marianne, I, I'm not sure how much uh, vegan cheese that you eat, and you know how much you can like recall dairy cheese. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely the biggest gap. It, it's been a while, but I do recall it, and I've eaten really, really a lot of terrible vegan cheese because I've been vegan that long. And so now the vegan cheese sounds is fabulous as far as I'm concerned because <laughs> I went through that experience. Yes, it's it's certainly come a long way. You know, we we just used to have, used to have like the follow your heart and 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 the dia, and you know now we have like the miyokos and the viola life. And yes, it's certainly come a long way, but. You'll notice, like, especially like with the nutritional label, that the vegan cheeses, you know, one, they tend to be like very starch based. So, like, they tend to have like a lot of potato starch. And this is to basically give it that stretchiness and meltability that's missing from, from, from dairy cheese. And the dairy cheese is able to have that stretch and melt due to casein protein. So, casein protein you know, just is, is like an incredibly idiosyncratic, unique protein in that it's able to provide these textural properties to, to dairy cheese. And there's no obvious plant analog to casing. So you can't just like, you know, go out there and say like, hey, this, this protein can directly substitute for, for casing. And so, yes, it's been a huge challenge to find a protein that can, that can provide that stretchiness and meltability that, uh, that casing can. So I will, I will not say like, you know, we'll, we'll find this, that we've already found this or we'll find it tomorrow. 
but it's a it's a it's a it's a tractable problem. You know, I know you know from working with people, conversations, working on the problem firsthand, that there is evidence that you can find such functionalities in plant proteins, and so I'm fairly confident that we'll be able to reproduce it, if not do better. So now we get to the to the point that you're. I think you're the most excited about is that you don't just plan to replicate. You plan to improve. You plan to reinvent food. Can you can you talk about that a bit? Yes. One of the reasons I wrote After Meat is I want people to understand that the way to look at the replacement of animal products with alternatives is not akin to you know someone getting a knee replacement. So like someone getting a knee replacement is something that is understood as you, you, you try to put it off as long as possible. And when you do get a knee replacement, it's never as good as the original, right? In my view, the better model is to understand as we're actually going to be replacing animal-based foods with things that are just better in every single way that we care about. So for, for purely selfish reasons. So for the taste, cost, and nutrition. And so I think a better model to understand the replacement of, of foods, of animal-based foods, is going from donkey carts to electrical vehicles. So in, in many ways, it's just going to be all around better and everyone's going to want to do it for, for purely selfish reasons. And so along with that model of thinking about this transition, I think it's important to stop thinking about trying to do doing things one-to-one. Why do we need to do molecularly exact milk? Why do we need to do molecularly exact steak? I think we can do better. And, and at, at the end of the day, better is ultimately what's going to win. Yeah, and it's very exciting. Are you is, is this just limited to animal products or or are are we talking about like the Starship Enterprise and and you know you press a button and, and that makes your food every anything that you could possibly want it makes. Is that is that where you're headed? Or is it just animal products? So I I think like the future of food is is very exciting. You know, to your to your vision of like a Starship Enterprise and exploring foods. I could imagine, you know, we have our have our own 3D printers at home for making our very personalized meals. So, you know, let, like, let's say that it's learned the types of, you know, foods and tastes and, and moods that we have. And then we push a button and it's able to just, uh, you know, produce the perfect meal for us at that exact moment. And my point about the place of animal-based foods is that it just has, has no room in this future because it's so inefficient. It's so limited. Yeah, so it's it's basically like the Starship Enterprise, you know, flying into, you know, vast regions of space and, you know, we're just leaving it behind. It's, it does seem very exciting. It, I'm sure it's at odds with a lot of people, well, in the vegan movement and outside the vegan movement, the whole recent, well, relatively recent local foods movement, nat- everything is natural. Some vegans embrace it, some do not. I'm not really that into it. But, you know, not that I, I'm offended by it. But naturalism and anti-geoism is are really are really problems for you. Can you just talk a little bit, particularly the anti-GMOism, which I'm sure some people listening, you know, ascribe to, and some don't. But can you just talk about? You really feel that it's standing in the way of transitioning to get out of animal agriculture, don't you? I do. Yes. So I'll first start with naturalism because I think it segues pretty well into the anti-GMOism. So naturalism, or quote-unquote how natural a food is, or, or really anything, I just see it as being very, very imprecise. So the first issue is that what is natural? So 
all food that we eat today and that you that we buy in a grocery store is unnatural in some way. So it's been you know crossbred or cultivated to have certain features in a way that it's just not really comparable to its ancestors. And so I have an example of the banana where an, an ancestral banana had these very big seeds, the pith or the or like you know the part that we eat of the banana was just very, very you know minuscule compared to actually the seeds themselves. And then only through a lot of breeding did we get it to the point where bananas are today, where the seeds are small, where you can just eat it as it is and it's and it's sweeter. And so yeah, it's just not I just don't see naturalism as a helpful adjective to couch what's good and what's what's bad. I think we have to be more precise. I think we have to say ethical. I think we have to say nutritious and so forth. And then getting into anti-GMOsm. So the first point I emphasize about GMOs is that there are inherent limits with GMOs. So we can't... I worked in a GMO lab during my PhD. And I, I can tell you, it's one, it's like you don't get the intended outcome that you want. Like it's a lot of trial and error. And that's because there are just inherent limits to, to GMOs. You can't create like some sort of monster that, uh, you know, gobbles people up. You can't, uh, you know, create like, you know, a pathogen that just wipes out half of the population of the earth. Like that's, you know, in my view, that's, that's impossible. And I write about the details as to why. And instead, I think it's useful to think about GMOs as a tool to actually get ourselves past animal products. So I see it as a way to hasten that transition. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I think we'll still make the transition without GMOs. But like, let's think about the fact that you know there are 70 billion animals slaughtered every year for farmed animal agriculture, and then the trillions of fish on top of that, right? So if we can get to a world where we've replaced animal agriculture, you know, half a year sooner, that might entail the use, the safe use, I should say, of, of GMOs. Like it seems to me that that is very much worthy, worthy of our consideration. And we should we should look at it with more nuance. So let's talk a little bit about regulation, because obviously regulation is 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 at least in this country, at least in every country, apparently, other than Singapore, is keeping cultured meat off the market. And though I am told it, you know, all the companies or a bunch of companies are ready to get it on, but we still haven't gotten it passed. What kind of regulatory issues would you anticipate for biomass fermented foods? Yes. So there's first um getting it certified for grass or generally generally regarded as safe. So all microbes have to, you know, go through this process before a consumer can actually uh, purchase anything produced with a microbe. So I think just making that process, you know, more streamlined and, and, and easier will go a long way. For cultivated meat, I will admit that's a little bit outside my wheelhouse. But yes, like I think obviously we want to do whatever we can to make it, you know, to ensure safety. But it, it seems very worthy of just, you know, putting a lot of money into the problem, right? So, so making sure that we have the resources to do the validations, you know, quickly and, you know, not having issues, you know, such as with the FDA, where there's just a lot of, uh, you know, short staffing and not enough bandwidth to, to assess everything in a, in a timely fashion. 
I didn't really want to make trying to force you to talk about the culture meat movement because I know it's not your thing. But 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 now I'm going to ask you about it. What do you think about the cultured meat movement and all of the other approaches that are being taken? Do you think they're wrongheaded? Do you think there's steps on the way to a bright and better future? It sounds like biomass fermented foods are not getting the same attention. So so how would you change the way that the food movement, the alternative animal-friendly food movement is, is working? Yeah. So I would not eliminate cultured, cultured meat and cultured meat research or funding entirely, but I would love to flip around the emphasis. So, so the same emphasis that cult- cultivated meat is getting, I would actually love to put onto biomass fermentation. And, you know, the, the, the little that biomass fermentation is getting, I think we should give to cultivated meat. I see it as, you know, this is, this is such an, an important problem. So, so transitioning from animal agriculture is just one of the most important efforts of our generation. It, like we, we have to do this. It is, it is going to be, you know, one of the best things that humanity accomplishes. And in my view, like, you know, we should just be trying as, as many things as possible. Even if I don't fully agree that cultivated meat is necessarily a great solution, I still think it warrants, you know, some amount of interest and investment. And, you know, the way technological progress works is, you know, often, it, you know, things kind of occur in ways we, we don't foresee. So I could see a solution where, you know, biomass fermentation does end up being the winner but maybe we learn some things from the way we did cultivated meat or cultivated meat is able to produce, like, say, some key ingredients. I know a lot of companies are focusing on fat with cultivated meat because fat is actually really hard to produce in a way that's uh, similar to animal products using plants or, or, or microbes. It's actually easier with, uh, with, with cultivated meat technology. And so that might be the ultimate end for, for cultivated meat technology. But yeah, at the end of the day, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to stop any 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 effort that helps us tackle this problem. So, who is working on for biomass fermentation? Is, is it a very small world, or or are there companies who are who are trying to get there? It's not all happening in your garage, right? <laughs> no, uh, no, thankfully. So, so there are a lot of companies, and as I understand it, there are. It's actually one of the fastest growing markets in the alternative food space. So, so uh, you know, corn is, of course, like the most cano- canonically known, but there's also newer companies such as Meaty. I know uh, Paul Shapiro's company. I-, I feel really bad, but I'm forgetting the name of his company, but they do microbial biomass fermentation. And, and yeah, so and, and investors seem to be kind of cluing in onto it. So there is, there is definitely a lot of industrial interest in micro- microbial biomass fermentation. But of course, I would love to see, you know, more academic interest too. Like I would love to see some, you know, government programs, actually funding labs like the one that I worked in for my PhD to, to be able to tackle these sorts of issues. We just don't have nearly the amount of funding for academia that the meat industry does. It's, it's, I think it's one of the great tragedies that, I mean, the research the meat industry does is idiotic for the most part and, and deceptive and, there needs to be much more funding. I, I'm going to take this quote out of, out of the book because I just thought it was such an interesting idea, but it brings up a lot of question. We could gift bioreactors with such production organisms, i.e. the 
the biomass fermentation, to starving villages in Niger and Afghanistan, and farmers could reap sufficient food in a trivial amount of time. I'm just trying, you know, it, it intrigues me because I just wonder what that looks like. All right, you take a bioreactor, which I assume is like a, I'm, I'm picturing it like a huge Xerox machine, I don't know why, and you ship it over to a village in Niger. What, do farmers still farm? Or do they just get, I don't know, some kind of ingredients that they feed into this bioreactor? Like, what does the world look like? Are there are there still farmers? And <laughs> I don't even know what the question is. Like, it seems like you're changing the, the way the entire world creates food. So just tell me how that particular, let's take me to that starving village in Niger and tell me what it would look like when the bioreactor arrives. It could look like many, many things. So all bioreactors still need some sort of input. So there's uh, laws of physics, uh, you know, you know, just mandate that. But yeah, it, it could be as simple as like, let's say that there are these crops that are able to be grown in, in Niger that are not, uh, you know, directly consumable for humans, but, you know, you could, you could throw them into a bioreactor. The microbes have enzymes that digest those crops into something that they can consume, like say, releasing the sugars that are in those crops. And then the microbes produce the, the meat or, you know, food. And then, and then the farmers can harvest it. So it could be something like that. It could, it could also be that, you know, we, we, we put uh, bioreactors in, in key points throughout the world. And then we have drones that fly food from these points to different parts all around. And yeah, it's just going to be way easier with technology such as biomass fermentation. So a bioreactor, how, complicated a piece of machinery would that be uh how expensive would it be like i know we're talking about the future so it's it's a little hard to predict because i assume i assume the price will come down <laughs> once we start using them it's all a little out there in the ether but how big a deal is a bioreactor is it a relative i mean you talked about having you know and, and i've seen talk before about having a 3d printer in your kitchen would it be that simple could everybody have their own bioreactor yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, in fact, many of us already already do. So if you if you do any sort of beer brewing, you have a bioreactor. So I know bioreactor sounds like evokes this image of this very sophisticated piece of equipment, but really all a bioreactor is is a bucket. So it's it's a bucket, and then it might just have additional bells and whistles depending on the needs. So you know, typically it has an impeller to to stir, you know, to create good mixing and ways to control its environment, so so the oxygen and the pH. And so all that visibly adds a level of intricacy, but when you understand like what it's doing, it's it, you know, there's still a simple big picture to it. And yes, uh, you, you bring up a, a really good point, Marianne, about just the cost of bioreactors and you know what the outlook looks like for food. And this is something that the alternative food movement is kind of grappling with. So, so classically, bioreactors have been sort of catered to the pharmaceutical industry. So they're expensive. They have lots of bells and whistles. You know, they have all these high standards when it comes to sterility and, you know, just making sure it's, it, you know, it operates very cleanly because that's, that's imperative for, for a pharmaceutical context. But in a, in a food context, you know, those things are less important. You don't need things to be as nearly as sterile. You don't need things to be nearly as clean. And so there is no reason we can't make bioreactors that are, that are cheaper. And I think like even like the fraction of the price of what they're sold to in the pharmaceutical industry. That is really interesting. Yeah, that makes total sense that 
even though you you want food to be clean, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be as refined as as producing drugs. All right, I'm just going to get to one. Like I keep coming back to the food because I keep wondering what's coming out of that bioreactor and whether I would want to eat it. And according to you, I would be dying to eat it. It would be just delicious. But the thing that, of course, always comes up and which you discuss in the book is when talking about changing people's food habits, which I think is a lot easier than most people think. I think you think it is too. I mean, once you've gone vegan, you realize it's not that big a deal, but it's the tradition. You know, people always bring up, well, what about traditional foods? And, and, but you make the point that it, tradition is a lot more malleable than than people think. So can you just talk about that and how food coming out of the bioreactor might be able to scratch that itch? Yes. So the first point I, I make about this is if you actually look at most of our food today, most of our food today only came about in the last hundreds of years. So a great example is the tomato. Tomatoes are a quote-unquote new world food. So that means they weren't quote-unquote discovered until the Europeans, I guess, uh, found them in either Mexico or Peru. I, I know the exact origin is, is contentious. And so what that means is every food that we eat today that uses a tomato only came about in the last uh, 200 years or so. So, and in fact, uh, tomatoes were regarded very warily because uh, they look a lot like belladonna and, and other nightshades. So, so people actually thought they were just poisonous and they liked how they look, but they didn't actually consume them. And so that means Italian food, Indian food. So anything that you can imagine that's very tomato heavy didn't, didn't actually exist until about the 19th century. And that extends to, to, to many other foods. So, so milk chocolate, you know, is, is an invention of the 19th century. You know, even a lot of vegetables that we eat today. I bring up the example of Brussels sprouts. We didn't actually eat that many Brussels sprouts until about the 90s and 2000s because they were just way too bitter and, and farmers figured out how to, how to breed, how to breed them to be less bitter. And so any like, cuisine is just it's just very different than when it was hundreds of years ago. So all to say like our food traditions are constantly evolving. It's, it's not like if I'm eating like a, a Christmas meal that I'm eating the same thing that one of my ancestors ate from, you know, 20 generations ago. And so to me it's just going to be it's something we do organically. You know, just as as better and newer foods come out, we we tend to adopt newer traditions and and I see the same effect happening here. Well, I know you don't want to replicate current foods, but let's face it, people have a really hard time imagining not eating meat, like just classic meat. And there are some people who eat it like at every meal. I think most people seem to eat it at every meal. So arguing to people that tradition doesn't mean anything or the traditions are not as traditional as they think they are, is probably not going to change their minds. It's hard to imagine what's going to change their minds. Nothing seems to change their minds, but you think you think this is going to do it. This that biomass fermentate fermented foods are going to are going to be the key. Yeah, and and let me just say like I don't think it's going to be that we eliminate our traditions. I think we just kind of adapt them, we evolve them, we refine them. And actually like the Thanksgiving turkey, I think is actually a really good example. So the way like you know, the Thanksgiving turkey became commonplace, didn't really come about until probably like after World War II, when we had better refrigeration technology. And, you know, we started, unfortunately, to, you know, develop uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. 
So everyone having a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner, that just wasn't a thing, even, even as early as uh, the turn of the, of the 19th, of the, of the 20th century. So I think it's, I think we're going to see like a similar progression where like, instead of like turkey, we might just switch to something like a better, like, you know, t- turkey replacement. So like the impossible or impossible beyond meat of, of, a, of a turkey. And then that might give way to something else. Gradually by gradually, we'll just be in a completely different place than we were, say, uh, 10 years ago. It's all, it all sounds so exciting. And it sounds like it, it could make a difference in the world that is just astronomical. Uh, and, and I can't wait. I hope I, I hope, I hope I make it to see this brave new world. And I don't use that uh, term pejoratively. It's really been exciting to hear about it. Thanks so much for joining us, Kartik. Thank you, Marianne. And, and thank you. Thank you so much for all the work you and Jasmine do. You know, love your podcast and it's just been a joy and you've done so much for the movement. And I look forward to seeing, you know, more of the great content that you, that you both put out. That's so nice to hear. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. 
We'll be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.